I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. Entrepreneurship to me means freedom. Like it is my version of freedom. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Ellis Isle founder and CEO, Naila Ellis, walks us through the timeline of her incredible startup journey that's still unfolding by the day. Ellis Island Tea, just recently rebranded to Ellis Isle, traces its roots back to a closely guarded family recipe from over a century ago. But introducing Ellis Isle to the world was not an easy feat. And Naila quickly learned that perfecting a tasty beverage was only part of the equation. I don't think any of us, including myself, considered the time. And it was it was a grueling process and I'd lost all of my staff. Find out how Naila kept her head up when doors closed around her, why retaining central control of the business is so important to her, and where Ellis Isle plans to expand next. Unfinished Biz starts now. To all the Unfinished Biz listeners out there, we have a great example why it's Unfinished Biz, because even since we recorded this podcast, the brand name's changed. You might have seen the <laughs> brand as Ellis Island Tea in your local grocery store, but now the brand's actually Ellis Isle, which you'll hear from Naila, kind of how it came to be that way. And as on- honestly as you're going to hear, uh, this is very much a story of entrepreneurship through and through. And it's one where it started out when she was a little kid. Uh, it wasn't something that she discovered late in life. You know, she's always had this this sort of streak in her, and it's taken her on all sorts of twists and turns. And along the way, there's been a real theme of working hard and grit. And that didn't change recently in the fact that we could only fit in this podcast in between manufacturing runs at her (laughs) plant. Yep. So I started as a college dropout. So I had this original grand plan that was to go to college, get a business degree, end up with a very high paying job on Wall Street. And I would work there for a couple of years and then quit my job and take all the money I'd saved and start a business of some kind. I've always known entrepreneurship was my destiny. I just didn't know what type of business I would go into. Um, I didn't have a product, no talent, no service. And, um, <laughs> so that, that was the, the grand plan. So I went to Howard University in D.C. And freshman year, first semester, I realized how student loans work. And I would have graduated north of 100 grand in debt. And I've never been one, like, I just, I don't like debt. Debt is like, I, yeah, I've avoided it for years. And so I figured why not cut a few steps out and go after something as risky um, and insecure as entrepreneurship while I was young enough to change my mind and come back. And so left school and I never looked back. I moved back into my mother's basement um, in Detroit. Everybody thought I was crazy, of course. And then the trial and error started, uh, it began then I was uh, I was like 19, like 19 years old. I have no sense of time. Everything was yesterday <laughs> to me, but I think I was 19. And I wrote out a list of businesses that I could go into. And then I asked myself the question, if there was no such thing as money, but you had to work, which business would you do? Like, what would you do for free? And I would carry on my family legacy all day free of charge. And so my great grandfather, um, who created this recipe for what is now called Ellis Island tea, he was a Jamaican immigrant who came into America through Ellis Island yep. in the early 1900s, which is part of the reason we named it originally Ellis Island tea. The other part is because our maiden name is Ellis, and it just it made sense. 
let's back up for a moment. So when you're so when you're at Howard and and you decided to to leave school to start an entrepreneurial venture, at that point, you just knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur. You didn't necessarily you hadn't chosen anything yet. Right. It, there were I was leaning towards the the beverage company, but I wasn't sure. There were a few ideas that I had. I could be a personal trainer. I was really in shape at the time. Uh, I could, I could do run a babysitting service. Um, I looked into adult foster care yep. and I could like buy a building and, and run one of those. And, and with every other option, the agenda was money. And so not trying to chase money. I just asked myself the question, if there was no such thing as money, but you had to work, which business would you go into? And that's how I landed at the beverage company. And I'm glad I did because it was years before I started. Like I just got on payroll like a year ago. So I, I dedicated, made a decision to dedicate my life to this. What year was this that you decided to leave Howard and start your entrepreneurial journey? This was 07, 08. Okay. So, and where did that drive to be an entrepreneur come from? Because it, it sounded like you always knew, but yeah. was that just something, was that Parent, so I that? went to a school, like a very small private school, and I watched the the founder of the school just gave us experiences that a lot of black entrepreneurs come and speak to us. And so and, and these people and we're talking the first female black uh, astronaut, Macy Jemison, she came to speak to us and like all these wow. things that are not real or unfathomable to people who look like me seeing people in these positions let me know if they can do it. I can too. Yep. And for the founder of that school to to build that school from nothing and no resources. And she literally participated in building the building. Like she laid some of the bricks herself. And so um, that's where I knew it was possible. And then we had a, this, uh, it's called, it was called Taiki Town. It was a little store that was in a closet. And then we would sell chips and juice and you couldn't use real money. You had to earn the Taki dollars through good behavior. And the first time I stood behind that that counter in the closet and sold the chips and the juice, I was like, whatever this is called, this is what I'm going. I was like six or seven. This That's was amazing. I knew that was my destiny from that young age. And so, yeah, I, I just I fell in love with the art. It was taught to me at the time as inventor um, and I just fell in love and I knew that was my calling. Sounds like it sounds like you you, you sold more. Uh you're able to collect more talkie tickets than any other than any <laughs> than any other kid standing behind that counter, huh? This is yeah, it was uh, way before uh, way before crypto. I mean, that is <laughs> <laughs> you're well ahead of the curve. So, so you're back home. You decide to to help drive forward a, a family legacy with the with the recipe. So, how did you start from there? I mean, it's one thing, sort of making a product at your home. How did you turn it into a business? So I built the whole company on trial and error. And I just, so the recipe had never been written down before me and I knew I wanted to bring it to market. And so my great grandfather's instruction before he died, um, for, of course he passed away well before I was thought of. And his instructions was, were for the recipe to be sold and not told, which means put it on the market. And he ended up running one of the largest catering companies in the Bronx um, in the early 1900s. It was called Byron's Catering. The recipe for the for the tea never been written down, but it was passed down a couple generations, and it ended up in my father's hands. And it would mainly get made for like Thanksgiving gatherings. Right. And food is like the way we love in my family. It's the way we communicate. Like everything, food is everything for us, yep. and we're the most passionate about our taste buds. And so I 
literally had to just figure it out. And so the recipe was given to me like this, a uh, couple lemons, couple lines, some tea bags, and there you have the recipe. I thought it was simple because it's just tea, right? So I, I went to the store, I got a five gallon stock pot. I'm, I remember like yesterday and um, I went and I bought the tea bags and I bought the fruit and I tried my first batch and everybody knows a watched pot never boils. I literally stood there and it seemed like it's days. And then the, the tea finally came to a boil. Um, I chilled it and couldn't wait to try it. And it was absolutely disgusting. Like the, the tea red, when I made it, it was brown and it tasted horrible. And so I just worked at it every day for an entire year and finally mastered it on batch number 365. And then from that point, it's like, okay, I have the tea good enough to sell. Now what? How do I get it into stores? Where I didn't know how to do that, but I did know how to sell things out of my truck. So I was that duffel bag kid in middle school and high school selling <laughs> chips. And yeah. just like I learned at Nataki, selling chips and juice boxes to classmates. And so I figured, why not just load up my cooler, hand bottle the tea at night, and then in the mornings drive around the city. And then wherever I saw people, I would get out and sell it. And then fast forward a little bit from there, I realized the reason I hadn't gotten into any stores yet is because of a fear. I was scared that I would walk into a store. My dream account at the time was Whole Foods and I would get laughed at. And so I, I looked fear in the face and I said, never again um, will you sell tea from a, a cooler in the trunk of your car. If you're going to sell, it's going to be through a store. And so I walked into Whole Foods and I saw a guy putting beverages in the cooler, in the beverage cooler, and I just walked up to him and I was, my hands were shaking. I was like nervous as shit. I don't know if I've ever been that before. <laughs> and then I just walked up to him and I'm like, hey, um, I see you're putting beverages in the cooler and, you, and hopefully talks, you guys talk a lot about supporting local, but I'm looking in this cooler and are any of these beverages made in Michigan? And he's like, wow, no one's ever asked me that before. And the answer was no. And so I said, well, I, I, uh, I have a solution to that problem. Um, I'm a local uh, beverage manufacturer. I have my own company. And then I showed him my bottle. My hands were tr like trembling. And then he laughed and he's like, first of all, this looks like a business card take to a bottle, which that is precisely what it was. <laughs> there was no nutrition facts. There was no ingredient list. And he's like, how are people even going to know what's in here? And I'm like, man, I never thought about any of that. And so I said, well, if you could lead me to the application and then a list of things, you know, do's and do nots um, that I can follow. And I'll just figure out how to get everything you're saying. I need nutrition facts, barcode, whatever I need, I'll figure it out. And so he led me to the application and it was, it was as thick as like a ACT prep. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yep. And so it took me quite a bit of time to fit, to learn the lingo of industry. Everything was a, everything was like an acronym on the, on the application. I knew nothing about any of this. And so it took forever, but I figured it out, got my first sell. So um, that Whole Foods bought one case, which was in a crate at the time. And I was just so excited. I brought my crate of teas. It was 12 bottles and uh, pulled into to the back of the store, drove around the front, parked, and then went in and did a demo. And as you guys probably know, how demos work. I sold out in like 20 minutes. And then from there, I demoed every day. So they were ordering a case a day. Love and it. then fast forward a little more, I became the top selling local drink in all the Whole Foods in Michigan. And then fast forward a little more from there, we ended up getting major distribution with Sam's Club. And then fast forward to today, I'm the largest black female beverage manufacturer in the country. And we've got a ton of 
momentum happening right now. We've got two major, let me, major. Let me back up for a second. I'm fascinated by, you know, the day you got it into that that one Whole Foods. You, you left Howard in 2007. What was the what year was it that you got that you got the product into Whole Foods? I have no sense of time, uh, but I would say <laughs> generally speaking, 2012, 2013. Okay. Okay. So between yeah. so between 07 and 2012, 2013, you were developing the product, took 365 days to get it right. And then from that three or four years of selling it out of a duffel bag. Is that about from a cooler in the trunk of my car? Yeah. So yeah. on the streets of the city. And then there were some like mom and pops. It was a couple of bakeries yeah. that were giving me a shot and put the product on their shelves. But I didn't have any real distribution into Whole Foods. Were you were you flying solo this entire time, or were there some other folks? Yeah, one man band in the beginning. Dang. Okay. So this uh, while you were doing trial and error in terms of just the formulating the product, that was all you. It's, yeah, and it took gotcha. a minute for people to take me serious. And I used to take, take it personal, but it wasn't personal. Um, I think naturally people tend to project their fears onto other people. And so it was like, you're, this is a joke. You're, you dropped out of college to become, and they literally used to call me the lemonade girl. And it, and it would be like, now you let me get this straight. You left, you dropped out of college to be a lemonade girl. And they would ask me like that. And it's like, I know it sounds crazy, but just watch, this is going to be a huge thing. I'm going to blow up and, and it's going to be a really successful company. And it was, a, it was a huge joke. And so in the beginning it was all, it was, I was a one man band. And then I had my first employee who I was paying cash under the table. And yeah, he, uh, he came in and started helping me as far as brewing batches and bottling. And then, um, yeah, we, we grew from there. During that time when you were flying solo and, you know, people didn't really believe what, what kept you going? So, I have always been, for one, very passionate about the art of entrepreneurship, if you will. And entrepreneurship to me means freedom. Like it is my version of freedom. And then also very passionate about carrying on my family legacy. It wasn't something that was hard. It wasn't, as far as staying motivated to keep going, that wasn't something that was on my mind every day. Like I didn't have to fight to find motivation in the in the beginning. Now, over time, motivations change, they evolve. And so there have been moments or periods in time where I've had to search for and dig really deep for motivation to keep going. I've had those moments, but never really in the beginning. Gotcha. Again, congratulations. I mean, it, it, you became the number one selling beverage manufactured in Michigan. Yeah. From that one Whole Foods store, how did you make that all happen? How did like how how did you conquer that that dynamic? So Whole Foods, I guess all the locations they look at each other's sales and and I guess the category managers. I don't know if it's a if they like compete with each other, but the sales started showing up in the system, and then other buyers for other Whole Foods stores were calling that West Bloomfield location, saying, "What is this Ellis Island tea?" Yeah you that I'm seeing all these sales on, I think I want to try it. The sales look really good. I think I want to try it. And then one location at a time called and said, Hey, how would you like to put Ellis Island tea in this Whole Foods location? And then I got a call saying they were opening up the first Whole Foods within the city limits of Detroit. Yep. And they said, we want you to be the featured local drink for this store. And then from there, I, I got the opportunity to go into their warehouses. So I didn't have to deliver to each store individually because it got to be too much. Then they called and said, we want to put you in our warehouse for the Midwest region. 
And then we just, you know, we, we kind of grew from there. Walk me through that next stage of, okay, so you conquered Michigan. How did you get to that next stage of becoming a national brand, becoming the largest black female owned beverage manufacturer in the country? So that part of growth was very tricky for us. And that's when the like major ups and downs started happening. And so we would get like, for example, one of the retailers gave us a one time, a national one time buy. So that means one time we're going to put your product in every single one of our stores in the country. Yeah. So it, for, for us, it was a really exciting time because finally we can solve this huge pain point of accessibility for our fans or consumers, if you will. And so through social media, we, you know, we've got quite a bit of buzz nationally. Yep. And so with that, people will go into said retailer all over the country and then they'll look for it. And then they found it one time. And then it's like, no, wait, guys, it was a one time buy. Consumers don't have the time to study each individual business and follow. OK, well, what does that mean? What is a one time buy? That's not common knowledge. Right. And so they would get frustrated and upset with me every time we did one of these deals where it's like, okay, we'll put you in this region. And then they'll go everywhere. Even though I put in big bold letters on the social media posts only in these locations in this region, they see, for example, Sam's Club, and then they go everywhere and then they're pissed at us. <laughs> that was a very frustrating time. And I'll say yep. the past five years has been that where we'll get a one-time buy or uh, a rollout in it and the rollout is like a trial but we it's it makes marketing damn near impossible if you don't have a huge like millions of dollars in marketing budget to push the product awareness in those specific locations and we just kept going and kept going and those were the times that I, that I mentioned earlier where I've had to dig really deep to find the motivation to keep going because it kept seeming as if like this is not it was a it was a cycle we would get major growth one time and then have like, I'll get all these national interviews and then people get really excited to support the brand because they like the product and then they'll go everywhere and then they can't find it. And then, or they can only find it for a limited time. And then we start getting hate mail and then we get another retailer to put us out. Then the same yeah. thing. And then we get hate mail. And so over these past like five years. And so now this is why this is like really, really major for us. Um, and my line, like I'm at the plant production is running now we were running 24 hours a day, seven days a week to fill this initial order for, uh, so we're, we're going in every target in the country come yeah. April 11th, which is huge for us. Congratulations. And, yeah. Yep. And then we'll be on Amazon Fresh and um, Amazon.com, 100% of their warehouses. And this is not a one-time thing. This is a long-term relationship. And so now when we put up a post, we can say, go to your local target now. We don't have to say go to these six targets in Texas and that one in California and then like it, it's not complicated. And so yeah, very exciting times. And you said your, your manufacturing plant, is this a, do you use co-packers or is this your own manufacturing? We do 100% of our production in-house. That's great. And, and so how long, when did you build the manufacturing plant? So about six, going on seven years ago, today we've uh, we've been in production so i started out with a co-packer and i just did not like not having control over the quality that they were putting out and then consistency yeah. and so whenever they would get a larger order because they had much bigger clients than me we would get bumped even though i would pay 
in full before they even started the order. And then they would put me in a schedule and then I would get bumped because who's not going to take a, you know, for example, let's say Pepsi calls them and says, we need you to run an order next week. Everyone else was getting bumped. And so I was tired of that. And then the inconsistencies, sometimes product would be like the bottles would be sticky because they didn't wipe the bottles. They didn't wipe the tea. And it just, I didn't, I couldn't take not having control of that part, the, the quality. So we ended up opening up shop ourselves. Along this journey of opening a manufacturing plant, did you raise capital along the way? What was your what was your method of funding? We did all of that on T cells. Yeah, so we didn't we don't own the building; we're renting. Yep. Yeah. Um, but we did do all the renovations ourselves. Wow. So it's been this, the business is completely bootstrapped. Yes. Yep. And we love that, by the way. I think you know. Robin and I talk about this all the time in an age where people are like, it's a capital raising frenzy where, where entrepreneurs talk about all the time. Well, I can't do this or that without raising millions and millions of dollars. We just, we just love highlighting stories like yours where, you know, your perseverance and your hustle overcame the need to raise all of that capital. And then as a result, you own, all of your business too. And you, to your point of control, it's not just about your manufacturing and plans. You decided to bet on yourself and control your own destiny. So we just wanted to applaud you on that because, you know, it's a breath of fresh air when we get to meet an entrepreneur like yourself who, who, who didn't raise millions to, to start their business. And well, I wanted to, it speaks to, well, tell us more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I just, I, kept getting closed doors. And so I had no choice. It wasn't like I didn't want to raise. I've been trying to raise for years. I'm going to say five, six years. And I did. And, and I'm not going to blame the potential investors. I'm going to say I just wasn't, I didn't have the necessary re- resources to properly articulate the opportunity for the investors. And so I would go and ask for, for example, Hey guys, I need a million dollars. I need 500 grand for marketing and I need 500 grand for equipment. And then I could not really, like when we get to the, the particulars or specifics of the finances, my background is not finance. So I would have a very hard time. And then I would get frustrated. Like, don't you, why can't you just believe in me? Look at what I've done. I've been in Whole Foods. I've been in Kroger. I've been in Sam's. I've got all this, you know, I've got a lot of credibility. I've done tons of national interviews just, you know, just give me the money because I want you to give me the money. I wouldn't say that, but that would be my frustration. And then it was like, okay, well, we need to go back to the lab and answer all these questions. And then a lot of times it was questions that I couldn't answer because it was just me. And my specialty or my arena is manufacturing and, and making tea. And then it would be like, well, hey guys, I just make tea. I'm not a I don't have a degree in finance and then get mad at them for asking me those questions. But those are very important questions to be able to answer. And so I finally just got to a point where the resources came and I just kept doing my best. And my theory is or, you know, model for success is pray like everything depends on God and work like everything depends on me. And so that's what I kept doing. I did my best and just counted on God to cover the rest and whatever I need will eventually come when, when, when I'm ready for it. And so that's exactly what I did. And now the, now I've got like a line of people who want to join the cap table. That's awesome. I love that. I love that story. And you know, and as a result, you know, your business, you know, backwards and forwards. Right. And, you know, I think that's the other dynamic that Rob and I have found over the years on bootstrap businesses are those entrepreneurs 
know every facet of the business because they've literally done every job in the business. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing is, I, I don't know if you can think of it this way, but maybe it was a little bit of a blessing, right? It, that you, that the money didn't come as easy early because at this point you've got a lot more leverage, right? Yeah. I think like all things, you know, when you've got multiple people and when you're a bigger business, a more established business, you know, ball is much more in your court than in the beginning. Yeah. So yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. I would have had to have given up much more right. of my company back then. Yeah. Totally. And that really kind of, it, you, you, sometimes when people actually raise a little too early, it really paints you in a corner because yeah. then you kind of have to do some things as opposed yeah. to like having the freedom to choose your own options. Yeah. So I know it probably doesn't feel like it, but it may be a little bit of a blessing in disguise, at least at that point in time. And you yeah, know, super excited to hear about that. Yeah. So in raising that capital, how much are you raising and what do you plan on, on what, do you, what, what are the goals of, of that capital raise? Great question. So currently, uh, we are closing on a $5 million raise and a portion of those funds are going to go to getting more efficient production equipment. Like it shouldn't take me running production 24 hours a day, seven days a week to fill one PO. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're going to get some equipment in here that's a lot more efficient. And then finally, 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 we are going to be able to spend and the marketing department. I am really excited about that. Marketing is just really, really hard to raise raise for because it's so hard to prove the return on that investment. Related to that point, as you're expanding nationally to Target, are you doing anything to continue to build out your team? Can you tell us what your your team looks like? You know, it looks like from a composition standpoint today. And are there any near term additions as you as you expand nationally? Yeah. So we've got a production crew of about fifteen people. Yep. Uh, that we keep in rotation. And then I uh, just brought on uh, my brother, whose background is in finance. So originally when I wanted to go to Howard, I was following his footsteps. Yeah. He finished. He got the degree in finance from Howard. He did go on to work Wall Street. Um, and he's got all that great experience that is needed at this time. And so he came on and he's he's heading up the finance department for me as well as director of operations. So he's, he's, he's co-manning the ship with me. He's like my right-hand man. I trust him. And not just because he's my brother. He's a he's a great guy. And so um, just brought him on. And then we've got, um, as far as advisors, I've got the, he's a retired CAO of Coca-Cola Global. So we've got some really good experienced hands coming in um, and in providing resources for us. And we've also uh, recently partnered with, I'm not sure if you guys heard that news, with Kevin Hart. Nice. Um, yeah. And so he's coming in, help us on the marketing side. Kevin Hart, who's got over 100 million followers on Instagram alone, he can put up a post to say, go to your local Target. And then everybody can go everywhere. You know what I mean? I have a machine behind me now, and it just feels really good to have the help. That's awesome. It seems like it's all coming together. Finally. Know, and <laughs> you know, like, like Robin said, it feels like it's going to pay off in the long run because yeah. you know you know your business as well as any entrepreneur we've ever had on this show. You've done every job, and now you're bringing on people onto the ship that that are that are more siloed and focused like your brother that are really good at certain things and and you'll keep adding on to that as you continue to fill out your overall team so we're really excited to see where you take it from here and what an amazing journey right after the break we'll be back with our featured guest founder and ceo of ellis isle naila ellis 
Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on past episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates. And big thanks to everyone who's left us an iTunes review. But now let's get back to our episode with Ellis Isle founder and CEO, Naila Ellis. So as you look back on your time, and I know there's still so much of a, an exciting future as well, but as you look back, was there ever a moment where you felt like you were betting the company? Anything where you put it all on the line? So uh, funny question. I'm actually experiencing that now. So everyone advised and everyone who's got ex- tons of experience in this industry told me I was absolutely insane to do a national launch with Target right now and with Amazon. And, and I'm launching on the same day. Naila, you are absolutely insane if you do that. And I said, F that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bet my life on this and because it, it's, it's now or never for me. And this is literally a make or break moment. And the big million dollar question right now is, is she going to finish the order the order in time? Is she going to deliver on time and full? No one, like you just don't deliver late to target, like the target, you know what I mean? And absolutely, where there's a will, there's a way, we are going to figure it out. Um, is there a chance that I won't? Yeah, but- <laughs> I know, I'd bet on you all day long. So <laughs> I bet you finished that order, you know, like you said, you, you it's almost like you've been you've been waiting your whole entrepreneurial career for this moment. Yeah, and, and I'm not gonna mess that up. And so we have until Sunday, this Sunday, dang. to finish the order. We'll make it. I believe in you 100. percent I'm. I just feel bad that we've taken you away for an hour from from driving towards that goal. So thank it, you for it's speaking. It's fine. I need to sit down. <laughs> Again, it, it's for every entrepreneur. There's always highs and lows. I'd love to learn more about you know what. What's been the what's been the high point in your in your journey to date? Um, the high point would also be it would be the same answer. Um, this opportunity with Target and, and Amazon national distribution. This is the the biggest and greatest opportunity we've ever had with the company, and it's not just a one time buy. It's not hey we're going to try you out and put you on the shelves one time just to say hey we're supporting the local community. No, this is a this is a really big opportunity for us. Love it. And then on the flip side, you know, entrepreneurship's never easy. Is there is there a particular low point that that stands out? Yeah, so after I had done one of my one-time buys, I lost 100% of my staff because that that order, so it was a one-time national buy with a retailer. I don't want to speak bad about them, so I'm not going to say which one. And it that order like killed that crew. And so this was a few years back and we, we had never run. So we went from running production one to two times a week. If that no consistency in scheduling. So I had a hard time keeping staff because it just wasn't worth, they needed consistent jobs that could pay them consistent money. Yep. Um, and so we got this, we got slammed with this order and it's like, all right guys, you got, you went from begging for hours to now we can, some of you, I need to work doubles. And, and I just feel like everyone was excited about the hours and calculating how much money they would take home. But I don't think any of us, including myself, considered the time. And it was it was a grueling process. And I'd lost all of my staff and had to start over. So we finished the order and they made more money than, than, than any of them have ever made in their lives, improved the quality of life. Um, some of them started out living in shelters. And then by the time we finished the order, they had multiple vehicles they had houses like really improved the quality of life but it wasn't worth the time that it took and so 
that was a major low point for us and a huge uh, lesson learned. So for them, it, it wasn't because the retailer came and went. It was because it, they, they, the, the effort was the, the amount of hours that they were in blood, sweat and tears going in for that team was, was more than they, they wanted to bear. Yeah, it was, it was that coupled with, we went from that to, you know, you can work as many hours as you can. We need you guys to work all that you can to back to flat line zero. Right. So it's just the, the inconsistency. And then a lot of them had signed up for signed leases and taken on mortgages. And then we just flatlined on production and I couldn't give the hours. And so it's like the quality of life went up, but then, okay, now that this order is complete, how are these people going to maintain? I didn't see past the one-time order. I was just very optimistic and thinking if I get the order one time, I'll, I'll make sure the sales happen to the point where they keep reordering. And I didn't have the marketing, the necessary marketing mm -hmm. dollars to keep the order consistent. And so it was a lift, but then it was a huge drop after we finished that gotcha. order. Well, at this point in time, I know, I think I know the answer to this, by the way, uh, kind of given what we've been talking about, <laughs> but what's keeping you up at night? Uh, what's keeping me up at night right now is finishing this order. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> yep. And then the equipment is not used to running. I feel like sometimes these machines are little humans and <laughs> they need breaks. So I, literally every piece of equipment on this floor has gone down on us throughout this order. It oh, man. goes down. And so, but we keep getting it back up. Yep. So that is what I literally lay down and I just blink until six in the morning and then get back up and come back to the plant. Oh man. That's what's keeping me up, finishing this order. So Robin, you know, I think one of the themes of Unfinished Biz is perseverance and grit. And I don't know if we've had one that that really exemplifies this than than Naila. Yeah. No, it's been I feel like she's had so many opportunities to hang it up, right? Um, you know, lots of ups, but also obviously lots of downs that she's actually been really clear about. Um, but through it all, it, it sounded like, you know, she's she's never really sort of thought about about doing that. You know, she's always wanted to continue to keep going. Um, and I think it really does feel like being an entrepreneur and a founder is it's a through line in her life. It's it's not going to change because she, you know as we talked about earlier, you know, she was, she's been doing this her whole life in terms of, of various entrepreneurial ventures since she was a kid. And in so many ways, this story started like many of our other companies that we've had on the show and what we've seen at VMG with, you know, selling product out, you know, out of her trunk, uh -huh. iterating a family recipe and getting her start at Whole Foods. But I think the unique dynamic is she vertically integrated early. She ramped up her, her business ramped up the team, but never got that consistent distribution that she was looking for, where her team had to, at one point, walk out the door, which, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, how that feels. You know, it's, I get it. I mean, with, with that sort of level of, of roller coaster going up and down, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly commendable uh, where she is today, because she really is, she's positioned her business at this really exciting inflection point, right? The first of just the idea of rebranding, the second of actually raising outside capital, you know, and the third of making this really big bet on target. As these things pan out, it absolutely is going to put her business in a totally different trajectory. 
So obviously as busy as she is, it comes as little surprise that she doesn't have too much time for anything else but her family. And I, I completely understand that. I like traveling. Um, I like, and, I, and I'm in a stage of discovery right now. Um, so I recently moved, uh, relocated my family, and um, I have, I'm a mom. Got two daughters, love spending time with them. However, it is hard right now because I'm living at the plant. Um, yeah. this order. But I, I love traveling and spending time with my unit. That's great. Well, you know, it, it seems like the genesis of your story, it's always been family first. You know, you know, it's a family recipe. It's a tribute to your grandfather and your family and and the the, the how you named your business. I think it's really exciting. And I'm not surprised that. You know, when you're not putting your blood, sweat, and tears into the business that you want to spend it with your family. It makes a lot of sense. But Nyla, you, you ready for the, the most serious part of the podcast here? Our <laughs> game, heart, these are some hard-hitting, very, very serious questions. You ready to I go? Really, really suck at this, but let's uh, let's give it a let's give it a this is make or break right here. What's the most used app on your phone? My emails, because I'm lame. <laughs> What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> so I'm a huge uh, Bruno Mars and then J. Cole fan. So one of, it depends on my vibe. Uh, whatever I'm feeling at the time, if I'm feeling like a rapper vibe, I'll go J. Cole. If I'm feeling like a smooth vibe, I'll go Bruno Mars. Who inspires you? I'm inspired by a lot of people. I'm going to go with Kevin Hart. Uh, what's the weirdest job you've ever had? The weirdest job I've ever had was gutter great of America. Uh, me and my friends signed up to take this job. We literally would walk around different neighborhoods trying to sell people on like selling gutters. We got to come, we got to come back to that one. Who, <laughs> what or who makes you laugh? My co-parent and my daughters have me laughing all day, every day. Awesome. Do you have any hidden talents? I am actually, and this is really, really hidden. I only do it around Rob and the girl, my co-parent and my daughters. I uh, I can rap. Nice. Oh wow! <laughs> I want to learn about your rapping and your and the gutter selling. I can rap sometimes. What's the last concert you went to? I think it was Jay Z and Beyonce. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you went, you, you sold gutters. We, we, we got to dig in. What was the pitch? Gutter great. I don't even, I just remember we used to say gutter great of America all the time. So one of my closest friends, his name is Justin, and he would do this impersonation from the training and then we ring a bell. Hello, sir or man. My name is Justin or my name is Naila from gutter great of America, of the whole America. Um, and then just try to make up some issue with their, their gutters. <laughs> we knew nothing about gutters and then just pitch. It was the the funniest job I've That's ever hilarious. had. I love it. How'd you do? Did you sell some gutters? I worked there for like three days. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you knocked it out of the park. Got it. Complete joke. <laughs> well, last question. What, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Before you go into entrepreneurship, because it is it is really, really hard and there's no security in it, I would ask the question, just like I asked myself the question, if there was no such thing as money, but you had to work, what would you do? 
And, and I think in answering that question, you find your passion and that's what you should stick to. If that is entrepreneurship and you're willing to dedicate your life to it, then go for it. If it's not, and you know, if you find entrepreneurship is not your passion and you wouldn't do it for free and, and if, if money is your goal, probably you should probably find something else. And it's, it's okay to do that. And I, I know entrepreneurship has got like this sexy image, and, but it, it is grueling. It is grueling. That's great advice. Well, congrats on all of success. Good luck with your target launch. And thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks a lot for having me on. Really appreciate you guys. This was fun. Thanks. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Wayne. And I'm Robin. We'll be back with another illustrious guest in no time. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.